For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Joining me over Zoom video conference, Attorney General Mike Hunter wants an audit of the state health department. The request came after reports over issues the agency is having have his agency has getting protective equipment for hospitals. Governor Stitt is criticizing Hunter for moving forward with the audit. Ryan, what do you think of this investigation? Well, I think that it's worthwhile. I think that, you know, in a, in a time like this, you know, this, this, uh, this is unprecedented. There are a lot of moving pieces, people, agency heads, legislative leaders, elected officials all have to move fast, but that doesn't give you a license to not operate within the law. Uh, and we're not entirely sure yet what the um, what really motivated uh, the attorney general to move forward with this request for an audit uh, from the state auditor and inspector, uh, at least you know with any particularity. I don't know if it was a, a whistleblower or if there's you know some information that they're looking to to verify. Um, but you still have to operate within the law. And I know that the governor's saying that this is going to you know put uh, a, a real restraint on the state's efforts. I just don't think, think that that's going to bear out. There are fiscal teams within each of these agencies that are already being tasked with trying to identify and account for every penny, uh, both to the state and the federal government. Uh, so those individuals should be able to, with, with their records and their experience thus far, be able to cooperate with investigators in a way that gives them an opportunity to see if people are following the law and you know that we as taxpayers at the federal level and the state level uh, and as recipients of those services, know uh, that we're getting um, that we're getting everything that we should for for our money. Yeah, Neva. Well, I mean, it, M- Ryan is right in the in the sense that there are, there's a lot of information flying around, but there's some certain things that we know. I mean, the attorney general uh, has notified the health department of of uh, the investigation. He has told uh, the uh, auditor and inspector that uh, he believes that this is a priority. So. Uh, her office is uh, talking about assigning staff to come in as early as next week and begin uh, the audit process. And then we have published reports that talk about uh, the health officials had been moving forward with a nine and a half million dollar uh, purchase uh, mm-hmm. of uh, the N95 masks and some other equipment, and had been and uh, that this particular uh, company uh, has been identified as being under investigation by the FBI. Uh, for possible fraudulent activity involving Chinese ventilators, so there there are a lot of things that obviously um, uh, raise raise questions and are cause for concern. At least to get to the bottom of you know kind of the bottom of the pile and understand what the real facts are. And we also have seen published reports that say that there have been authorized prepayments uh, at the health department for supplies, millions of dollars, you know, involved potentially. And while we know in the pandemic uh, that we have been experiencing that getting this equipment available uh, and on the front lines for uh, the people that need them has been a critical priority. There still has to be a process, and and when you have when you have a large agency and you have a lot of new people being infused into the process, I mean, the uh, by the governor's own description, his quote czar for PPE, as he described him, <laughs> is uh, someone that's uh, been redirected uh, uh, deputy tourism director now over the PPE uh, supply chain, and so um, I think. I think this is a case of where 
there's a lot of quick moving uh, action on multiple fronts, but clearly the attorney general believes that something should take place in terms of an investigation to make sure that everything has been done properly. And Ryan, in crises like this, it's it's real easy to get things, uh, to make things go so fast that you don't, you make sure not to, you, you lose track of the, what you're supposed to be doing and spending the taxpayer dollars. Right. And and there's there's two types of accountability at play here that, that I think are both uh, valid subjects for the attorney general's investigation. First is political accountability. Um, it may not have been illegal for the governor to purchase $2 million in hydroxychloroquine, uh, which is, you know, was basically just a ruse by the, the president and one of his bizarre press conferences, uh, you know, you know, uh, pontificating like he's a, a physician or, or, or a pharmacist, a pharmacist, and he's just not. Um, and, you know, the governor bought into that and spent $2 million on that. The political consequences of that, we spent $2 million on a drug that's not going to work. We also removed from the supply yeah. chain a drug that's important for many other um, uh, uh, illnesses like lupus uh, and made it harder for people to get. Um, and then there's the but then there's also the, the legal side of it. There's legal accountability. So are we paying fraudulent claims uh, negligently or intentionally? I mean, are, are we are we doing things that are against the law? And both of those one, the, the politicians, namely here, the governor, because the, the buck's going to stop with him. Does the governor pay a political consequence for that uh, stuff? Uh, but then there's the legal consequences of are there criminal, is there criminal culpability at some uh, at some level? You know, both of those questions are totally up in the air at the moment. Uh, but I think that they're valid. They're valid things for the attorney general to be looking at. And then the 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 subtext here that's also really important is that we're beginning to see a lot of fissures within the Republican Party and and state leadership. Uh, we saw you know, just last week the fight between the governor and the attorney general over tribal gaming compacts. Um, you know, this is going to only deepen that rift between the AG's office and the governor's office. Well, and I think that I, I think your point is well taken, Ryan, on the the rift between clearly the governor and the attorney general. I mean, we're, for the governor to criticize the attorney general for making the request for the audit, uh, kind of just summarily make that statement. And yet in a press conference uh, earlier this week, uh, talked about the fact that he had uh, just a few weeks ago arranged for a strategic financial team of public employees that would closely monitor, I mean, by his own, by his own description, closely monitor the COVID-related transactions so that they could, in fact, be able to account and report back to Congress uh, for every single dollar spent. I mean, we're talking $1.2 billion in funds that the state is receiving uh, that they can expend on COVID-19 related uh, uh, purchases and and uh, needs. And so that's a lot of money that's going to be flowing through. And uh, the, the need, I think, for all for all elected officials to want and have is exact accountability on what takes place with the with this money. And so um, everybody kind of we see the we see a lot of things, as I said at the beginning, kind of flying around, not the least of which was in the letter that uh, the attorney general's uh, chief deputy sent uh, to the commissioner of health basically uh, reminding that employees cannot be disciplined for reporting mismanagement and Mm -hmm. and gross waste of public funds, et cetera, et cetera. That's really the classic description of the whistleblower uh, uh, protection. And so whether that is going to come into play, I mean, 
remains to be seen. But again, this is an agency that has uh, been uh, riddled with investigation after investigation in, in recent years. And it's unfortunate that we now have this infused into um, the world we're living in right now with COVID-19. Uh, Governor Stitt says the state is moving forward with plans to open up businesses. As we talked about last week, cities were likely to follow quickly behind. And did they ever witness within hours more Midwest City, Yukon and others scrapped their executive orders while Oklahoma City and Tulsa let theirs expire yesterday? Neva, what do you think of this decision? Well, I, I, I think that it, it, uh, it was not a surprise uh, to the extent that as, as we have seen this movement uh, really in the last few weeks moving toward reopening, uh, talking about uh, the benchmarks, talking about uh, following uh, still the, the uh, White House guidelines and, and moving forward in a process that, that has the capability to put the, put the, uh, the halt on it if needed. And so I think that uh, I, I think the pressure the overall pressure to get the economy jump started, but to do it within a context of of not just throw the doors open with no no rhyme or reason, and certainly no um, uh, protocols in place that uh, that help on the on the uh, health risk side. I th- I think I think that we're just going to have to see how phase one works moving uh, moving forward in the next few weeks, and whether they have to adjust their thinking accordingly. Ryan. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. We talked about this last week where the, um, you know, whether mayors and, and particularly the mayors uh, and Mayor Bynum and Mayor Holt and Tulsa and Oklahoma City, respectively, um, you know, whether even they could withstand the, the political pressure that the governor's decision was going to make. And ultimately they couldn't. And they're, they were very reluctant in, in their press conferences uh, and their statements announcing that they were going to be following the reopening plan set forth by the governor. They were very reluctant and um, I think unusually critical uh, of the governor. I mean, they, they didn't outright say that they were going to defy it. I think that they only didn't do that because they thought defiance would be uh, impracticable and in, uh, not feasible at this moment. I mean, Oklahoma City is, is an enormous city that spans multiple counties uh, and it's surrounded uh, and in sometimes, uh, you know, even even surrounds other smaller municipalities with their own with their own uh, government decision making authority to either reopen or not reopen according to the governor's plan. So, you know, even if Oklahoma City had remained shut down, you know, as Mayor Holt said, we could have a situation where one restaurant on one corner of a street is open and the other is closed. That doesn't really protect anyone. And so I think that they reluctantly are opening. I think one of the things that we're seeing anecdotally is that Oklahomans took this very seriously when our municipal leaders began to take it very seriously. Municipalities led the way here, not the state. Municipalities led the way. They led the way into a social distancing norm. And the the state now is undoing that. They're leading the way out of that against the best advice of the medical community and many of the state's leading mayors of the largest cities. So we are in this really precarious situation now where I think Oklahomans have a lot of mixed messages. Um, mayors are doing their best to avoid a patchwork situation that we walked into this with a patchwork situation where it was largely dependent upon where you lived as to what your, uh, what your restrictions were, uh, at least at first. Uh, and even, even throughout the governor's shelter uh, or safer at home policy, we never had a true shelter in place like most other states in the nation did. So it's really been up to municipal leaders. And I think that Oklahomans 
are trying to, you know, they're desperate to return to normal, um, you know, economically, uh, for their mental health, for a lot of reasons, people want to get back out into the world. And I think that this relaxation right now, uh, when we don't have widespread testing, when we haven't seen the kind of reductions in the kinds of cases that medical professionals tell us that we need to look for, um, that that's going to that's going to ultimately you know put a lot of Oklahomans, in particular vulnerable Oklahomans, uh, at risk. You know, lower income uh, people, frontline workers, people that are going to have to return to work uh, that otherwise wouldn't have to. They're the ones that are going to bear the brunt of this, and a lot of folks uh, are going to be able to continue to maintain the kind of uh, 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 activities uh, to protect themselves. But a lot of Oklahomans won't. So when we reopen, we're putting a lot of people in jeopardy. While Oklahoma is dealing with possibly the worst unemployment in history, state leaders consider canceling a $600 a week federal payment. They fear the money would be too much for minimum wage workers and they wouldn't want to go back to work. Ryan, do you agree with this? Yeah, and that's that's been um, a, an argument that was an argument against the $600 uh, bonus uh, on top of unemployment benefits that the that Congress contemplated whenever whenever they passed the CARES Act that it was going to keep people at home. I just don't think that that's going to bear itself out. The real problem here is the just terribly low wages of these jobs that people are returning to. Um, you know, we're talking about a lot of people that are having to go back to jobs making minimum wage, and Oklahoma has one of the lowest minimum wages in the nation. Typically, under under unemployment in Oklahoma, you're getting about forty percent. Uh, thereabouts of your, um, you're getting about 30, 40% of your take-home wages uh, on unemployment. With the $600 on top of that, um, it puts us a little over the 100% mark. So you're getting about 100% of your, of your, of your normal take-home wages and sometimes a little bit more. Um, this is a really difficult economic time, maybe the most difficult economic time in uh, our lifetime that we'll ever experience. Uh, and certainly that most people have ever experienced up to this point. So the the idea that we need to cancel this, um, you know, they need to cancel these payments to me is just reprehensible. Um, you know, we need to put as much money in the pockets of hardworking Oklahomans as possible. And that $600 means the most to the people that make the least. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if there's a real problem in Oklahoma, getting people to go back to work, we need to re-examine our minimum wage. We need to not try to think about how do we end these payments to Oklahomans through July that they are entitled to and that almost every other state in the nation, those folks are going to get it. And we've got officials in Oklahoma talking about, you know, we need to figure out how to cancel that. If somebody gets called back to work and their job is open and available to them, uh, they've got to go back. Uh, and if they don't, they lose their unemployment benefits. It's as simple as that. Um, but the idea that we that we cancel this right now and put a huge weight on the backs of the most vulnerable Oklahomans, to me, is just uh, despicable and reprehensible. Viva. Well, I think even though there had been this discussion about whether or not the 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 uh, there should be a move to end the federal unemployment benefit, uh, it and that was in a conversation at a governor's council for workforce and economic development meeting, I think a Zoom meeting uh, late last week, when that kind of a far ranging conversation took place among many CEOs, business owners and other folks on that uh, on that um, uh, council. But bottom line is, I mean, the Department of Commerce, uh, their spokes, uh, their spokesperson uh, earlier this week made it clear that this is not something that the state would do. So even though that conversation had taken place and, and let's 
kind of frame it in the context of what was being discussed. You have you have a real critical dynamic here in that you're trying to balance 200,000 Oklahomans that have filed unemployment claims, uh, uh, balance that insurance fund with balancing getting businesses back up and running and and uh, folks back to work, and then balancing the welfare of these unemployed individuals until they do get back into the into the workforce. And they're, the things that are in place uh, at some point are going to run out. I mean, just like you said, Ryan, yes, uh, the, uh, the $600 weekly uh, federal unemployment payments will continue uh, until July 31st, but on on uh, August 1st, uh, that changes. And so uh, the uh, the idea that that these folks uh, right now, um, it, unquestionably, there are folks uh, sit, that are on unemployment, that are making more, uh, that are on the lower end of the of the wage scale uh, with this extra uh, stimulus that they're getting uh, with this with the $600 from the federal government, than they would going to work. But at the end of the day, it, they're, they're going to have to look at when they're called back to work, as you say, or the doors reopen on whatever business that they have been employed in and they have an opportunity to come back to work. That's a decision that, they, uh, that they're going to have to make. And these employers are in a tough spot. I mean, they need a workforce ready to go back to work if they're going to uh, generate uh, uh, generate uh, business income and and try to uh, stimulate the economy and get us back in a place uh, that we all know we need to be to make the the state financially um, so, solid right. and moving forward. But what I I'm, the the thing that bothers me I'm, I'm I'm listening to all these business people who say they would rather make sure that these people don't get the money then that more money comes in to boost up the economy so people can buy more stuff. I mean, that's I, that's what I you want know. people I, to do. You know, and I don't know that it was so much that they don't want them to get the money. I think I think the concern, as I understood it, that, that was largely being expressed was the concern of are we going to be able to get a workforce back in place to keep, uh, keep to keep our businesses open? Are these businesses going to run the risk of uh, of either not reopening or at some point we're going to see in large numbers of businesses, uh, you know, simply not survive. So I, I don't think it was being punitive mm. on the worker. I think it was saying we hope the worker, when that job opens back up, is uh, is uh, ready, willing, and interested in co- in coming back to work. And and based on some anecdotal uh, conversation and illustrations in that meeting, uh, it did give rise to some great concerns about uh, what was it going to happen. Some of this is going to be an initial problem and it's going to, you know, it's going to kind of solve itself uh, over a few weeks and months, but it, it does, it, it does see, I think when you look at all of these different things converging together, it is, it is a highly problematic uh, environment that uh, everyone's trying to navigate through. And it's not just about, you know, where the money's coming from. It's about the longer term picture of how do we begin to get back to some place like we uh, were in the first quarter uh, of this year, as opposed to where we are today. And typical unemployment is meant to provide some sort of liquidity for employees whenever they lose their job. Uh, you know, what the CARES Act did with the $600 payment on top of uh, regular unemployment benefits 
was to make sure that employees didn't have to choose and employers didn't have to put their employees in a position of having to choose between their health and safety and coming to work and being on the payroll. And so this was a benefit to both the employee and the employer. Just a, a few quick points. I think that one of the, the, some of the conversations that need to come out of this, one, we really need to start thinking about universal basic income. I mean, this $600 payment uh, is you know, one of the closest experiments that, Oklahoma, that Oklahoma and the United States has gotten to a universal basic income as a way to supplement extraordinarily low wages in one of the most prosperous nations on the face of the earth. Uh, the second, you know, the, one of the reasons that we've got those extraordinarily low wages is in places like Oklahoma, we have just rock bottom minimum wages and we need to raise those. And then finally, at, at the end of the day, we should never put an employee in a position or an employer in a position of having someone to have to come to work, choose between coming to work and staying well, or an employer saying, you know, I, I, I've got to have you at this job, this non-essential job uh, to, you know, to, so that we can continue to make money. Employers shouldn't be in that position. Employees shouldn't be in that position, but we shouldn't have state officials in public meetings uh, talking about how they're excited that we may be able to cut benefits for people in a way that hurts them enough, puts enough pain on them at this terrible moment already, puts enough pain on them so that they'll be willing to return to work at you know probably very low wage jobs to begin with. Lawmakers are planning to return to the Capitol on Monday. The building has been mostly empty for the past month, with the exception of one day to pass bills to fill a shortfall in the current legislative session or in the current uh, fiscal session, fiscal fiscal year. Neva, the state legislature has a lot to do and very little time to do it. And I think uh, they will come back on Monday. And I think the expectation is that they will they will address uh, a fairly small number of policy bills, things that uh, that they have some consensus on that they believe can uh, move through uh, both chambers and get to the governor's desk. And then uh, and then they will finalize a budget. And and when we look at the three weeks that they really, I think, got left to focus on in May, that's as we've talked about so many times through the years, that's where they're always at. I mean, some of this is not unusual. It's just, they've been, they've been away from the building for a month and a lot of uh, uh, bills that might've made it through the process now have, have gotten sidelined and now they're down to the really, uh, you know, significant uh, policy issues that, uh, that are either time sensitive or things that, that uh, they want to try to get through the session um, and uh, hopefully um, signed by the governor. And I think that gives rise to another uh, uh, question that, that's looming in that this um, um, somewhat of a, an impasse or a, um, a, an ongoing um, give and take between the governor and the legislature, mm -hmm. if the governor decides to veto uh, some of the initial bills that come to his desk in the next week or so, um, then will there be veto-proof numbers uh, to uh, override the governor? And a lot of people uh, expect that that is the case and could be the case. So it, it, it lends towards some real combativeness, potentially, uh, as they get back into the, uh, the Capitol building and try to finish up their work. Bottom line, they've got to get a budget. They've got to uh, uh, get it finalized before the, the end of May. And I think the hope is that they can get out uh, uh, prior to the Memorial Day weekend and not have to come back that last uh, two or three days uh, before they are um, before they have their uh, mandatory statutory May 29th, 5 p.m. deadline. All right, Ryan. Yeah, I uh, speaking to uh, some capital insiders. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that 
lawmakers have expressed that there is a lot of anger uh, in the legislature right now between the legislature, both chambers, uh, towards the governor, towards the executive branch. And you know, Neva mentioned that. You know, how does that impasse play itself out with vetoes, veto-proof majorities on legislation, uh, their ability to compromise on on the you know, uh, current year budget, uh, upcoming fiscal year budget? You know, all of those things uh, become more complicated whenever uh, there's this you know impasse uh, between the uh, the legislature and the governor's office. I also spoke uh, with Representative Forrest Bennett, um, and he, what he, one of the things that he was saying is that I think is shared among a lot of lawmakers, and he said if they're going to be called back, putting them in danger, lawmakers are going to be called back, putting them in danger for potential infection, that they should focus on their, their bare minimum of their, of their constitutional duties, um, and that it gets even more complicated whenever you think about the question of inviting the public back into that building. Is the public there? Are lobbyists able to be there? And, and that was where, you know, I also had a conversation with uh, with another Capitol insider who I said, um, you know, if you think about the last few days of any legislative session, that's yeah. those are the that, that is the most opportunity for mischief, um, the most opportunity for unforced errors. And even, you know, we, in criminal activity, we've seen where lawmakers have been prosecuted. Most of those actions took place in those final few days of the legislature. I'd say, you know, look at this entire May as potentially one very last a uh, long last week of session. Um, and everybody should tread lightly in this highly pressurized environment because uh, I think that there are, you know, there are going to be lobbyists uh, and, and groups and interest groups that are going to want to make the most of this situation and try to get their deal done. Uh, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be in a, in a real haphazard fashion. Um, and we could, we could end up not knowing really what happens in these final few weeks of the legislative session mm -hmm. until June or July when we start you know, digging through the ashes. Around, well, I, I yeah. do think in conversations I've had with some lawmakers and others uh, uh, on this very subject, it, it appears that there is a real um, growing consensus and, and that leadership has uh, in conversations uh, appears to be focused on reducing the number of bills uh, that that really get uh, attention and, and get movement in these uh, in these next few weeks and then work in earnest to get a budget that the legislature uh, the legislature has basically agreed to and signed off on and then if the governor chooses to not uh, you know it chooses not to sign the budget just goes the the veto pen route that um, that they will position themselves to have the the numbers to be able to override that and take care of business and go home. I mean, those are a lot of the, you know, a lot of the uh, scenarios that are being talked about uh, uh, within the legislative circles. And, and that is, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, we have to remember on June 30th, many of these folks are on a primary ballot yeah. for re-election. Um, and in some cases, uh, they may not have a primary, but have a general. We're in a very uh, unusual political season, to say the least, in, in the way everyone is having to adapt to uh, communicate and deal with a campaign that still is, uh, is taking place, even though it has been uh, certainly curtailed on many fronts. Uh, and I think that, that, that unfortunately, the, um, this, as you say, Ryan, I mean, kind of this, this, this consternation and rip between, uh, uh, the, um, 
the governor and his folks and uh, lawmakers. I mean, hopefully they can all rise to the occasion and just get the business done right. and go home and um, get, and do what is what is responsible and necessary to keep government functioning, get a budget in place for the next fiscal year, and then. Um, um, uh, return to their districts and and do what is necessary back home. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.